Welcome to the BMO Road to Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bulls. Businesses have begun to turn their focus to the future beyond the COVID-19 pandemic, but the playbook of the past won't work in the future. In this series, we hear from experts across a variety of industries and professions that offer ideas on how leaders can address some of the critical facets of work and life that have and will continue to fundamentally change how businesses operate. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Road to Recovery Expert Conversations. I'm your host, Eric Bowles. As the election season heats up in the United States, One thing everyone can agree on is this election is like nothing we've ever seen. Beyond who the candidates are and the issues they are facing, it's the way we, as citizens, will take part in the election process. It will be different this year, and some of these changes may continue beyond 2020. My guests today have behind-the-scenes perspectives on where we've been and where we may be going. Chris Landa is the program manager at Verify Voting, a nonpartisan organization focused on the critical role technology plays in the elections. The Honorable Scott Bryson is a vice chair with BMO Capital Markets and former president of the Treasury Board in Canada. And David Jacobson is vice chair at BMO Financial Group and a former U.S. ambassador to Canada. I want to thank you all for joining me today. And for those of you who are watching on LinkedIn Live, we will be taking your questions live at the end of the stream. So please comment continuously with your questions. So we're going to jump right into it. So taking a quick step back, what is the process for choosing a U.S. president? And how has campaigning evolved to work within this system? Chris, I'd like to begin with you. Thanks so much, Eric, and thank you all for being here. So in the U.S., the presidential election works a little bit differently because it's based on the Electoral College, which was established in the U.S. Constitution. So every state in the United States has a certain number of electors. It's based on the number of U.S. senators, so it's two per state plus congressional representatives, which is based on population. Um, That's why you hear about certain states like Texas or California that are highly populated having more Electoral College votes, and certain states like Michigan or Pennsylvania, Florida, that really matter, right, because they swing between um, parties for different elections. So um, it's, it's a couple things that are important to remember. So first is that it takes 270 electoral college votes to win a presidential election. And the second thing is that there's a date, December 8th, that's the safe harbor date. And that's when the electors actually cast their vote and the date by which votes are certified. And the reason I highlight this, it's not something that people typically talk about, but this year the election is different and it's going to take longer to, to count those votes. And there's actually legislation right now that's been introduced to extend that safe harbor date to January 1st because of the pandemic. Thank you, Chris. Uh, David, can you speak on that as well as the campaigning side of it? Well, um First of all, Eric, I, I agree with Chris. We do not have a national election for president in the United States. We have 50 state elections. And as Chris pointed out, some states are more important than others. If you live in a state, safe state like I do uh, in Illinois, uh, we don't see a whole lot of TV ads or yard signs. On the other hand, if you're in Wisconsin or you're in North Carolina or you're in Arizona, it's all you see on TV. 
Um, in terms of the strategy behind this, um, you know, there, it, it's all very complicated, I suppose, at some level, but at another level, it's very simple. You want 270 electoral votes. That's what you care about. And you look to see which states are in your column fairly certainly. I, I would be very surprised, for example, if California uh, didn't go for uh, Joe Biden and Alabama didn't go for Donald Trump. Um, but then there are these battleground states. That's where all the focus is. Uh, and you have to be very careful that by picking up a vote in one of these states, you don't lose a vote in another. So um, it, it is a challenge. There was once a, a book in the 70s written about a presidential campaign called The Marathon. And I think over the years, if there's another one that's written, it will be called Ultra Marathon. It's, it's a long, <laughs> tedious process. Thank you so much. Uh, 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 Scott, can you speak about that in terms of the Canadian federal elections? Thanks, Eric. We have a the British parliamentary uh, system of, of government, the Westminster model. Uh, so there are 338 members of parliament in the Canadian House of Commons. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada is actually a member of parliament. He is a legislator as well as a member of the executive branch as prime minister. Uh, so you have to be a member of parliament. Uh, and, you, you know, so each party in, in Canada, and there's the, uh, the major parties, the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, the New Democrat Party, which is a social democrat party, uh, the Bloc Québécois, which is unique to uh, the Quebec and, and uh, uh, is there to... Uh, you know, focus on Quebec issues. Uh, they run candidates. Most of them, mo um, the Liberals, Conservatives, NDP, Green run candidates across Canada, the Bloc only in Quebec. Um, the, out of the 338, to form a majority government, uh, you need 169 members of parliament. Um, what that means is that if you have the plurality of the seats, the uh, uh, numbers in, for your party, uh, but not the majority, you will probably have the opportunity to rule uh, in a minority parliament situation. So you don't have the absolute majority of seats, but on an issue by issue, a legislation by legislation perspective, uh, you can govern for quite some time in that capacity. And that's what we have now. We have the Liberal uh, government under the leadership of Prime Minister Trudeau um, as a minority government uh, with uh, the ad hoc support on individual pieces of legislation to maintain government and advance uh, legislation. And the leadership selection process for each party uh, enables each party to choose a leader. That leader is not only a member of parliament, uh, in his his or her own writing, but is actually seeking the support of people across the country for his or her party. Uh, so you're voting for both your local representative uh, as a member of parliament, but you're also voting for prime minister and the political party under which your country, Canada, will be governed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for that, Scott. Uh, even before we go to our next question, I, I want to remind the audience who, who are watching on LinkedIn Live uh, to please continue to comment and engage with us with your questions. So now we're going to keep moving and, 
and, and, and this is going to get uh, uh, really good. And so no, the question number two asks, how has the digitization of elections changed the campaigning process? And David, I'm going to start with you. Well, I think there are two areas, and you know, I've kind of been involved in this process for a long time, so I've seen the transition. One is on fundraising, and the other is on messaging. With respect to fundraising in what old guys like me used to think of as the good old days, a very high percentage of the money that was raised by a candidate was in high dollar contributions. Uh, these days, the limit is $2,800 for the primary, $2,800 for the general. Um, but with the proliferation of the internet, social media, and others, uh, a disproportionate amount of the fundraising now comes in low dollar contributions. Uh, you know, it's better to get somebody to give $5 than it is to get $2,800, because the person who gave five can give five more and five more. The person who's given 2,800 is done. Um, I, I think the best evidence of this shift is uh, an announcement a couple of days ago where Joe Biden in August raised $365 million, which is a lot of money. Uh, and that would never have happened uh, before the age of the Internet. With respect to messaging, and this is something that, that I think everybody, not only the four of us, but everybody on this LinkedIn Live uh, understands, is that the media has become very balkanized. In the old days, again, I'm an old guy, there used to be three television networks in the United States, and all of them kind of played it pretty much down the middle. Um, now we have a, a media, certainly a television media, that is very differentiated. If you watch for a while on Fox News and then you turn to MSNBC, you kind of think they're reporting on two different universes. It's, it's really quite different. Um, and social media and, and other uh, parts of the Internet can be even more extreme. So it's changed it a lot. People tend to get their news from places that reinforce their pre-existing conditions and beliefs. Gotcha. Gotcha, Dave. Thank you for that. Uh, Scott, can you, can you speak to that as well? Well, oh, in, the, in, the, in the old days, one of the reasons why we did so much door knocking was to uh, and actually understand on an individual and collective basis the people who were voting. Uh, and you ask questions to understand what issues were important uh, to them. And a good campaign would actually track that and keep, you know, and just to understand both at a macro and micro level what positions could resonate, uh, what are the concerns of citizens. Uh, leading up to their decision on election day. Today with digital, all of that is happening at warp speed. And David is quite right. It, it has contributed to and reinforced a balkanization uh, and polarization of, of views. Uh, people who are of a certain pr political perspective listen to the same uh, news outlets today. Uh, they will read the same blogs. They will follow the same websites and, and get the same sources. Political parties can narrow cast on very specific issues to get the support of people who used to be referred to as single issue or uh, uh, voters. Uh, today, you can pull together a coalition digitally of people who don't have much in common with each other 
except for their own specific uh, narrow perspectives on individual issues. Uh, that is, that's a challenge for political parties and representatives who are actually interested in nation building as opposed to exploiting differences. Wow, great insight, Scott. Chris, you, this is the world you live in. So Chris, share us uh, yeah. your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, something I'll add is that there's also a lot more room for misinformation, right? And um, with the proliferation of social media and things like that, like we saw that in 2016, especially, and there wasn't as much awareness, I think, of how that misinformation really impacts elections. I think there's more of that. You're starting to see tech companies do more to try to flag those things that should be investigated, that which is fact versus fiction. But I think there's a lot more room to improve there um, in terms of just the massive disinformation campaigns that are out there um, and and how hard it is to control in the digital era. Gotcha, gotcha. I know um, I was once told that uh, our actions and decisions are only as wise as the information there uh, uh, it, it, it's based upon, right? And so the source of that information, I think, matters a whole lot. Uh, Scott or David, do you have any other thought before we go to this next question? I think we've covered oh, I, that I, one. I, 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 oh, yeah, and, and those of us who were involved in politics for a long time always complained about the traditional media. Um, I think most of us would like to have <laughs> them back uh, at this point. Uh, in you know, uh, in intelligent, informed, uh, centrist uh, people. Uh, yes, with biases, but compared to today, it, I, I, I kind of welcome. Uh, uh, traditional media sources more so than I perhaps used to. No, I got you. I got you. Eric, that I have to add is uh, a, a rather famous quote by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a senator who once told someone that they have the right to their own opinions, but not their own facts. Uh, <laughs> we get far too much of people's own facts on TV and in social media. Gotcha, it, it, gotcha. it used to be said that it used to be said that uh, he who owns a, um, uh, the press has the power. Well, today, anybody who has digital connectivity uh, has access to effectively the power of, 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 of the press to a certain extent. And they can build a quite a significant following among a narrow caste who, who agree with them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that's an no, advantage. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. No, it just it, oh, no, I, it gives some it gives some tools to um, first time candidates though that didn't have it before, right? So I think certain things are more accessible than they used to be in the digital era as well. Yeah, one of the thing I was I was just going to say, Chris, on on one end, you can see the positive, and you can see also the the challenge of it, right? The the ceiling's gotten harder, but in some cases the floor has gotten lower, and so it's it's the balance of those two. I do want to say these are some great thoughts and on this interesting topic. So we'd love to hear from the audience. If you have some questions or comments, please chime in. Uh, this next question I have, and I'm going to begin it with Scott and David, but the question asks, how have virtual conventions and rallies changed the way that people engage? And Scott and David, you've been very involved with that environment. Uh, so Scott, we'll begin that with you. Well, look, people like David and I, as people who are involved in the political process, we love the conventions. We love the funny hats, the, the bands, the hoopla, uh, the hospitality. The buffets. Uh, 
uh, all the all the, the smattering of vices to which we were exposed uh, at these conventions. But we were the insiders. Of course, we liked it. Uh, it was great. But on the positive side, digital opens this up so that more people, not just the people who can afford to go to these conventions, who are typically quite an elite group, uh, but actually more broadly, people actually get to put their stamp on political parties, on political movements, and choose political leaders digitally, particularly for young people, uh, particularly for minorities. Uh, this does represent, I think, in general, um, progress. Uh, David and I may not have quite as much fun as we used to at conventions, uh, but that's a small price to pay for a more inclusive political process. I, I very much agree with what Scott had to say, and, and I too miss it. Um, I, I've learned that there are, COVID has taught me that there are two things that I no longer need, neckties and political conventions. Uh, that it, it's just, there was great trepidation with uh, the Democratic and Republican conventions. What was it going to be like? Um, and I think that they were both more effective uh, than what we labored through in the past. Uh, there were mercifully shorter speeches. Uh, those speeches were more persuasive. And I think in particular, we had an opportunity to see average just voters um, given their side of the story about something. You know, on the Democratic side, there were a couple that stuck out for me. There was a young man who was a stutterer and uh, Vice President Biden, who also had that affliction, he still does, uh, talking to him about how to overcome it. And uh, there was another piece about a train conductor and the vice president took the train from Wilmington to Washington for many, many years. On the Republican side, there was a woman who had been pardoned uh, for some criminal behavior by President Trump who had championed criminal justice reform. Uh, there was a police officer uh, who had adopted a baby of a drug addict. Um, these were very persuasive because they were very humor, human. And I think we're going to see even after the COVID problem goes away, hopefully sooner rather than later, uh, we're going to see that. The one other thing, though, that I will say about these conventions anyway, doesn't seem to have moved the needle very much. Um, the kind of polling average before the conventions, Biden was ahead seven or eight points. Uh, and the polling average today, Biden's ahead seven or eight points. Uh, it may have kind of cemented some of the vote to make even fewer people persuadable in the middle, but it really hasn't seemed to have moved the needle very much. I don't know if others see it differently. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, before we go to this next question, I want to say again to our audience, please send in your questions or your thoughts uh, so we uh, be able to reference some of those at the conclusion. Uh, one thing I do want to point out, uh, you guys, we were talking about how the digitization uh, of these conventions actually created a, a greater level of engagement. Uh, I think many organizations are finding the same thing from a corporate standpoint as well. Those, you know, very select individuals in the organization going to these offsites or going to these company meetings because of resources. Now, all of a sudden, the whole company is part of these in engagements. And they're also seeing engagement actually going up in that one area, uh, which is which is uh, uh, synonymous with what we're talking about here. 
more people are being able to be involved. Uh, but this next question I have is, uh, and, and Chris, I'm going to begin with you. And the question asks, there has been a considerable amount of controversy surrounding voting by mail. So how does it work and why can't we just switch to online voting? Yeah, so I feel like it's first important to say that voting by mail has been happening since the Civil War. Um, this is a tried and tested way to vote. A lot of people vote by mail. Um, so it's the controversy, I think, is something to, to just note in terms of the times, um, whereas the, the actual process is very secure. Um, again, every state has this process. It's really about scaling up the process versus creating a new one. Online voting would be a new system to create, and it is not secure. Um, cybersecurity experts, computer scientists are nearly unanimous in saying that we are not there yet in terms of security. Um, it's just way too risky, right? It's not just about keeping our votes secure. It's also about keeping them anonymous. A lot of people will say, well, I can bank online. Why can't I vote online? Well, you can check the transaction. The store can check the transaction. The bank can check the transaction. There's a lot of checks and balances there that are not possible in an anonymous voting system and that's not done securely and frankly there's a lot of fraud right like i've had fraudulent charges on my credit card and then the bank can return that money to me that just can't happen with an election we cannot put our democracy at risk chris that's good how about um uh you know as we're going through this process david give me your some of your thoughts about that as well well i i think i mean i, I very much agree with chris's view Voting by mail is very secure. Um, but there's one big problem that it may pose, and I think it's very fundamental to our system. And that is that it will require great restraint by the media on the evening of November 3rd and 4th and 5th and 6th. Um, and the reason for that is that mail-in ballots in most states, not all states, it counted last. Uh, first, they tabulate the people who showed up and the early voting. Um, and based on a, a lot of projections, the sense is that, there will, that, that the parties will not vote by mail in equal numbers. Um, and it, it is quite possible, based on 30 or 40 percent of the votes being tabulated on election night, that one side will be in ahead. And then as the votes continue to be tabulated over the next few days and maybe the next week, uh, that the lead may shift. And everybody has to be very, very careful uh, not to start picking winners until we know that all the votes have been counted. Because the worst thing that can happen is that people lose confidence in our system. People lose confidence in the outcome. People lose confidence in the democracy. And that's something we should all be worried about. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, I, I, go ahead. No, just like, I think the mantra should be accuracy over speed, right? Like we want the most accurate results, not the fastest results. We want to make sure that every vote has been counted. There are people who wait in long lines to vote. The, the process this year is complicated. We have to respect the effort that has been made, right? And make sure that every single vote is counted and that we can trust those results. Yeah. Scott, how about your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, add, I would add to that um, 
obviously accuracy uh, is is critical and the integrity of the system is critical, but also people having access to the system and increasing the level of participation. I do believe that in time, digital uh, participation in elections, including digital voting, is the future. I agree with Chris in terms of the challenges technologically, in terms of security and anonymity. Uh, But I think countries ought to be in, and election uh, organizations that run elections in countries ought to be really focused on how to develop uh, the integrity, the security, uh, the safeguards, including anonymity of voting systems. Because for young people today, they are doing everything digitally. Uh, and we're asking them, uh, put, you know, we want them to participate in elections, yet, you know, they're part of a Netflix nation, and we're asking them to participate in blockbuster elections uh, in terms of the technology. And it seems to the, to a lot of them to be a bit a- anachronistic. So yeah. I would only say that, you know, I agree with Chris in terms of the concerns she quite rightly lays out about security and anonymity. But I think countries ought to as he, uh, and work on things like government digital identification that is double authenticated and secured. We should be looking at what countries, little countries like Estonia, and what they have done in terms of digital is very impressive. But I think ultimately we can see actually better elections that include more people in much of the same way that digital and, and uh, has helped make conventions more accessible, if less fun for David and me in some ways. In some ways, the digital has that capacity broadly in terms of electoral participation. Uh, But we have to get the security and anonymity right. But I don't think we should just sit back and wait for that to happen. That should be a part of a focus effort by countries in a multilateral sense, because all democratic countries would benefit from advancement in this area. There's two questions I have, and we're, we got about four minutes left. And I want the question, what you just spoke to, Scott, is a perfect lead into this question I have for Chris. I have a separate question for David. This first question is, do you think, Chris, based on what we're, do you think young people will stay engaged in the digital election process when they can't vote that way? Yeah, I'm, I'm a young person, right? I think I'm the youngest person maybe on this panel. Um, and I engage digitally. I follow of the people... <laughs> so I, um, you know, like I follow all of the people who represent me down, you know, from the city council level all the way up on social media because to me that's a good way to find out what they're doing and a good way to connect with them. Um, but I also want to make sure that my vote, my vote is counted. And right now, I just don't trust the online system to 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 trust that my vote is counted securely and accurately. Um, so yeah, I, I think young people can engage while still wanting it to be secure. I think it's we can look to states that have high young voter turnout and find out what they're doing and see if we can expand it to other states. Things like online voter registration, there's there's a lot that can be learned from states that have higher turnout than others um, and to kind of take those learnings elsewhere. Perfect, perfect. So this last question I have for you, David, uh, because of time. And the question is, uh, this question comes from Nelson. And the question asks, how traditional media could impact the changing democratic process? So how can traditional media impact the changing democratic process? 
Well, it, it already has in the sense of this balkanization, in the sense that uh, a number of, whether it's newspapers or television networks or, or radio networks, um, that, that they, many of them, not all, but many of them do not, are not perceived as playing this thing down the middle. They have, a, they have an axe to grind. They have a side to take. Um, and I think that that is part of it's 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 really the product it's it's the end product it's not what caused it but it has it has certainly cemented the political divisions uh, the political camps that people are locked into in the United States um, and my own view is that's not good um, and what I would hope is that we get back, we'll probably never get back to, nor should we, to three television networks, but we get back to a broader swath of the media, it's referred to sometimes as the mainstream media, uh, who play it more down the middle. Uh, I think it would be better for the democratic process, it would be better for the country, and I'm pretty sure it'd be better for me. <laughs> No, I appreciate that. Uh, we are right. We got about a minute left. Scott, do you have anything you, uh, you, you, you would like to add, uh, especially to that question that was just asked or any thought you want to leave with the folks watching? Oh, I, I just that, uh, you know, we have an opportunity uh, to engage more citizens in a genuine way in terms of shaping the policies that govern our countries in terms of the representatives that uh, represent us. I think Chris is quite in inspiring, I think, to young people that you can combine an analog. You know, you have a passion for your country and for politics and government because politics matters and government matters. And you actually can craft both a digital and analog approach uh, that can, can, can actually shape the future of the country. Uh, that is that is still a good news story, and and citizens both in the United States and Canada and any democratically governed country ought never take that for granted. Uh, but the system we need to it only works if individual citizens uh, get involved, ask questions, and participate earnestly and and actively. Without that, you know. You know, bad leaders get elected by people who don't vote. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to thank every single one of you. This has been insightful. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, David. And thanks to everyone watching on LinkedIn Live. I uh, hope you really enjoyed today's presentation. Uh, don't forget to join us on September 23rd at 12 o'clock Eastern Time, 11 Central, for our next conversation where we will discuss how 2020 has reshaped how businesses look at talent. Until next time, thank you for joining us on Expert Conversations uh, focused on the road to recovery. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Don't forget to visit bmo.com forward slash expert conversations. That's bmo.com forward slash expert conversations to watch videos with our experts and hear more insights from BMO. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. 
Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.